First of all, they went out and they looked for the person in Southern California in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church who knew the most about what it means to have a successful church. And he turned them down. <laughs> so then they figured, well, if, if we can't get somebody who, who knows the subject, at least we can uh, find somebody who's a good speaker. Even if he doesn't give them content, at least he can wow them with his words. But he turned them down also. <laughs> so then they figured, well, if, if we can't get somebody to give them content and we can't give them somebody with eloquence, at least we'll get somebody who's handsome and who looks good. <laughs> Uh, but George turned them down. <laughs> and then they asked me. <laughs> and I told them that since I'd already turned them down three times, I would have to <laughs> Actually, the reason I accepted is you don't often get the opportunity to preach uh, six, 50 or 60 minute sermons and not have people say you went overtime. <laughs> Thank you, George. Uh, I'm very excited, especially that we have uh, such a large representation from Bayview Church this year. I think I counted 14 people and I guess we've had one or two in recent past years. And I, I assume that the reason that so many have come is that I told them that if they did not come, I would use them as illustrations <laughs> in my messages. <laughs> Seriously, I, I do want to say something in as introductory remarks before we begin these uh, uh, six hours together. And uh, the first thing I wanted to say is that I'm not a scholar. You see, uh, they brought Dennis in uh, to give you all of the dazzling exegesis. You see, uh, Dennis is the scholar in our midst. I'm just a uh, simple pastor who has uh, wondered for six months what in the world I was going to say to those of you who, uh, some of whom have uh, been involved in the work of the church uh, since before I was born. And uh, I wanted to say to you, as I began, that one of the things I've learned in seven years of ministry is that I have so much more to learn, not only as a Christian, but as a pastor in Christ's church. I'm still a young man, even though I'm starting to get some gray hairs, and I'm still uh, immature in many ways. And so I ask you to, uh, to accept what I say here, not as the final word, or as even an exhaustive word, but I just ask you to, uh, to weigh it in the light of the Word of God as my contribution to your thinking about the church. I thought that uh, perhaps I should entitle this series of messages The Failing Church, because uh, in many ways I know more about failure, doing things the wrong way, than I have 
in my seven years doing the right thing, being successful. But I think that's one of the wonderful things about uh, being Christians is that we can learn through our mistakes and that the Lord can give us the strength to correct things that we've been doing wrong and begin to do them rightly. Some of the points I'm going to share with you are, are things that I've just learned in the past few months. Things that uh, it's, uh, it's taken me that long to listen to the Lord in these areas. And I want you to, uh, I want you to also realize what it is I'm going to do this week. I, I'm very thankful that Dennis gave a very good uh, outline presentation at the very beginning. He told you the goal. Uh, for the series of messages that he was sharing, and I want you to know that I am not going to give you a full-blown systematic theology of the church this week. I'm not even going to mention everything that a church needs to be doing in order to be successful. I want you to remember that. If you say, well, you left out this or this or this or this. I'm simply going to try to bring to your attention some of the ingredients uh, in successful churches which which I was lacking when I began my ministry seven years ago. I want to share with you some of the attitudes and the actions and the, uh, the empathy which I have come to see are very important in pleasing God and in bringing about blessings uh, amongst his people. Now, I've been uh, very encouraged as I have read books on this subject to find out that there are some people who agree with some of my concerns, some of these principles. But uh, the main reason you're getting these principles is not because I've read them in books, it's because they've come from my own experience, and therefore I, I believe in them very strongly. And uh, I want to say if at points you don't exactly agree with uh, the way I put flesh and feet on these principles. Uh, I want you to remember that nonetheless they are principles that are found in the Word of God and they're principles that you have to deal with in your church. They're the Lord's Word to you and therefore you have to answer to the Lord exactly how you're obeying them. What is a successful church? How do we know if we're, if we're doing more than just making ripples? in that uh, sea of unbelief, in that world of darkness around us. I'd like to summarize my, uh, my thoughts under the following headings this week. Uh, the successful church is, first of all, God's church. The successful church is a whole church. The successful church is a servant church. And that will be parts one and two. The successful church is a committed church. And finally, the successful church is a faith-filled church. As we talk about the successful church, it's obvious that the first thing that we have to do is to define the word success. If you look up the word success, in Webster's Dictionary, uh, which I did, you find that the most general meaning of the word success is to accomplish, is to accomplish 
what you are aiming at. It is to hit the target. It means that we, uh, we gain the prize, we gain the goal uh, that we are seeking. If we hit the target, if we hit our goal, then indeed we are successful. That's why the coach of a sports team, whose team comes in fourth place, can still be voted coach of the year. Because his realistic goal as a coach was not to win the championship. His aim was to teach the team his particular system. His aim, his goal, was to build a solid foundation for the future. By achieving that goal, he succeeded wonderfully, even though his team's record may only have been eight and seven. A mother whose child has learning disabilities may be thrilled that her child receives C's, because success is determined by whether or not we accomplish our goal. Now, the obvious next question that we need to ask if success is accomplishing our goals is what are the goals that we must achieve in order to be in order to be successful people and successful churches. Now we have all probably heard very good sermons on what the world values as being important. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, what the desires, what the goals of the world are. Everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the loss of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, its goals, pass away. The man who does the will of God lives forever. The cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Sometimes we summarize these goals of the world by designating them wealth, power, and prestige. These are the idols of the world, and very often if we achieve those idols, if we achieve those goals, we can become idols ourselves uh, to our fellow human beings who are seeking those idols. But what are the goals of the church? Most pastors who have preached from the Sermon on the Mount have pointed out that the ideals, the goals which God sets before his people, that blessed state which Jesus Christ describes in that sermon, is almost the exact opposite of what makes it with the world. The values and standards of Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor. The world says, blessed are the rich. The world considers anyone who mourns, especially over sin, as a religious fanatic, somebody who takes life too seriously. The world looks to the strong, the world looks to the macho, not the meek and the gentle. As John Stott has said, the world exalts those who mind their own business. 
not those who meddle in other men's lives by do-goodery, like showing mercy and making peace. The world's successful people are those who get the job done, even if they have to do it by devious means. Jesus calls us to be pure in heart and to refuse to compromise our integrity. And finally, Jesus calls us to suffer persecution. That's the normal Christian life. While the world values a secure, comfortable, popular life. You see, Jesus turns the values, the goals of the world upside down, and he calls us to strive for goals which are unnatural, goals which, do not, uh, which we do not strive after naturally or normally, goals which, if we achieve them, will make us stick out like a sore thumb. We will indeed be a peculiar people if we live the way that God wants us to. So let me remind you again of what success is. It is the attainment of a, of a goal, the realization of an ideal. Richard Huber wrote a book called The American Idea of Success. And in that book he said, success is a change in rank, the upgrading of a person in relation to others by the unequal distribution of money and power, prestige and fame. Success was not simply being rich or being famous, it meant attaining riches or achieving fame. So success is attaining our goals. Now the only question then that we must answer after hearing these separate value systems these separate goals, the only question we have to answer as human beings, as Christians, is who's giving us our grade? Who will we allow to tell us that we are successful? When will we have a sense of satisfaction about our success? Anthony uh, Campolo has written a book called The Success Fantasy. It's an excellent book. You ought to read it. It's pretty cheap, easy to read. Anthony Campolo has pointed out the fact that we feel successful if the most significant people in our lives deem us successful. We feel successful if the most significant people in our lives deem us successful. In other words, the inner feeling of success comes when these people, the people that we respect, give us their approval. <clears throat> for example, when we're children, we usually live for our parents' approval. Uh, about nine months ago, we went to the store uh, to buy our oldest daughter a pair of sneakers, and there were two colors that the sneakers came in. One was a brown and tan combination, and the other was a light blue and red combination. And I said, uh, well, Susanna ought to get the brown ones uh, because they look dressier and they can go with more clothes. You see, fathers are very practical in these things. But uh, Susanna wanted the flashy blue sneakers. But you know, as soon as she heard that I wanted this tan and brown combination, 
She absolutely wanted those brown ones. I kept saying, now don't get those brown ones because of what I said. And she says, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I like these brown ones. Nine months later, uh, she never wears them by her own choice. And why is that? Because she only bought those sneakers to please Daddy. You see, children, children have as the significant other person in their life who makes them feel successful, usually their parents. Why? That's why children uh, rush home with a good report card to show Mommy and Daddy. Or why they try to hide a bad report card. Because... The sense of success or failure in children often revolves around their parents' approval or disapproval. In the teenage years, the significant other persons on whom our feeling of success depends usually shifts from our parents to our peer group. It's what the crowd at school thinks now that counts. You know, I remember when I was willing to risk the wrath of my father for the sake of a longer haircut and sideburns. You see, that significant other person in our lives changes depending on our stage in life. And you see, in teenage years, those who do not allow the crowd to be the significant other in their lives are often ridiculed. They're called mama's boys or they're called sissies because they still consider their parents' opinions to be the most significant opinions in their lives. I have a friend who was so obsessed with the fear of being thought a failure by girls that he went through an actual dry run of every date that he ever went on. Stu, Stuart, what he would do is uh, he would go out the day before the date and he would actually drive to the theater or the restaurant he was going to take the girl to the next night. He didn't want to be thought a failure because he didn't know the way or because he didn't know all the other details perfectly. Now perhaps the, the most tragic position to be in is the one that many Americans find them in, themselves in, namely American adults, and that is adults around our country who are living for the approval of nobody in particular but everybody in general. They want to be thought well of by the world. They want to be admired by that uh, faceless crowd out there called society. See, it's not a specific other, it's a kind of a general other. But you see, the gospel has something to say about all this. The gospel is good news to us. The news which Jesus Christ was trying to convey to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And that good news is that we don't have to live with a constant fear of failure. We don't have to worry about whether we've done enough to please our parents. We don't have to worry that we might not say or do the cool thing with our teenage friends. Our life doesn't have to revolve around that. 
we don't have to worry whether we as adults are pleasing those people out there called society that we've never met. Jesus is saying to us that there is an alternative to the fear of failure which looms so large in our success-hungry society. It's possible to know success even when we fail because it is possible to know the God whose graves are always filled with grace. Let me use uh, Anthony Campolo's terminology. Is God the significant other person in your life? Whose approval above the approval of all others gives you the feeling of success. You see, this is the goal of the believer. To replace parents, spouse, friends, society, everyone and everything with Jesus Christ as the Lord of our actions. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 21 summarizes the purpose of God working in us. And that is that we might do that which is pleasing in his sight. That which is pleasing in his sight. So you see, the goal of each of us as Christians and as a church is to bring a smile to the face of our loving Lord. That's our goal, to please God. Our goal is to hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You see, Abraham would have gone against everything that society would say, that maybe even his own reason would say, by sacrificing his son. He would kill his own son to please God, because that's what God wanted. You see, we have to ask ourselves, does God have that kind of priority in our lives? Is he the significant other person to us above all others? You know, Martin Luther had a great sense of this God-centered orientation. He could write the words that we sing so often because he believed them, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. You see, Martin Luther would, would always, when he got into serious trouble, he, he would always cry out, Eo baptismo, Eo baptismo, I am baptized, I am baptized. God has loved me. God has set me apart as a member of his kingdom. I am washed in the blood of the Lamb, and I will live forever because his kingdom is forever. The world may reject me. They may all say I'm wrong, but their opinion is secondary. I am baptized, and it's God's grade that counts. And you know, what a revolution would occur if all of us started thinking that way. 
If church members began coming to worship services to please God and not to please the pastor or the elders, if covenant children made professions of faith to please God and not to please their parents, if our greatest concern when we go out and buy a new car or when we are considering a new job or when we're considering getting married, whether our greatest concern is, will it please the Lord, not will it please me or anybody else? Lord, I want to be acceptable to you. I want to be pleasing to you. What amazing freedom this would produce for our teenagers. The success of young people today does not need to be tied to how many dates they can get. It does not need to be tied with whether or not they get invited to the spring banquet. The success of young people does not need to be tied to whether or not they have a van or a pickup or a girlfriend. The success of young people does not need to be tied with whether or not they are on the varsity team. How often do we promote these other goals to our teenagers as being important things in their lives? How often do we respect them? because they have worldly success. Adult men need to be more oriented to God's opinions about themselves and other people. In the July 1979 issue of Psychology Today, they presented the results of a survey. The survey was to find out what the, mo the most respected, the most desirable professions are according to rank in the eyes of the world. Well, the most respected and the most desirable profession was a dentist. 96% out of the possible hundreds said that was a desirable profession. Lawyers and judges got 93%. Architects were at 90%. Natural scientists got 80%, authors, 76%, teachers and retail store clerks, 72%, insurance agents, 66%, manufacturing foremen, 53%, and then down with athletes, and bank tellers at 52% were the clergymen. Clergymen doesn't rank very high as a desirable and respected profession in the eyes of the world. When I moved to Maine, I went to the library there in Holton, and uh, I started talking to the uh, librarian there, and. Uh, found out that she was a member of the Unitarian Church. And uh, she says, oh, you're a pastor. She says, uh, we just lost our pastor. He went on to bigger things. <laughs> He's a teacher in Boston. <laughs> 
whose opinions of success are we going to accept? About a year ago, I heard a sermon on the cultural captivity of the church. And since then, I've done a lot of thinking about the ways in which we in the church unconsciously confuse the goals of the world, the priorities of the world, with the goals of God, the priorities of God. The way we unconsciously take over the world's goals and set them into place as our standards for success in our own lives and in the life of the church. Recently I read a book entitled Justification by Success. It was written by uh, J. Stanley Glenn. He's formerly principal of Knox College of the University of Toronto. Unfortunately, it is not a popularly written book. Uh, Dennis should have read this book, you see, uh, because <laughs> uh, he seems to find the most difficult way of expressing what at times is very simple and very uh, profound. So it took me a while to wade through all of that uh, fancy language. But nonetheless, uh, there is very much in his book to think about and to chew on. Uh, Glenn talks about what he calls the invisible captivity of the church. And what he means by that is that the church in the 20th century, according to his philosophy, and I think he's right, the church in the 20th century has been subtly and increasingly infiltrated by a worldly management mentality. In other words, the standards of corporate capitalism, the standards of corporate power in America have unconsciously become the standards of the church of Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean, practically speaking? How has this mentality which has creeped in this management mentality affected our life and ministry in the church. Well, first of all, and perhaps most importantly, it's affected our evaluation of success. You know, we say, like we said earlier, prestige. You know, being an important person, a bigwig, a luminary. That's a worldly goal. But who do we ask to give their testimonies in the big evangelistic meeting? My secretary insisted that I inject a little humor into my messages, and so I brought a few cartoons along to help make the point. After a brief testimony and related spiritual insights, Mr. Moose has offered to arm wrestle all comers. Why is the vague Christian testimony of an athlete or a senator or an actor more valuable than that of godly men and women who have known the Lord and grown like Jesus Christ over a period of 40 or 50 years of relationship? 
Why, at times, do we listen more eagerly to the visiting minister, perhaps the seminary professor, why do we listen to him more eagerly and more quickly than our own pastor? Beauty is a mark of success in society. Youth, that's where it's at. We spend uh, all of our time, at least some people spend all of their time trying to retain their youth with uh, Grecian formula and facelifts and uh, things like that. Society says that beauty and youth are where it's at. And we laugh at Madison Avenue. If you're like me, any time you happen to watch the TV and you see the absolutely absurd act of a beautiful woman in a long flowing gown trying to sell a car, you know, it has absolutely no connection. There's no connection whatsoever between the woman and the car. And yet, because to us beauty and youth in our society are important, uh, she commends the car to us. But do we think the same way in the church? You know, sometimes I think that we look at congregations that are older congregations. We look at churches that have older saints who've been around for many years. And we look at them as a dying church. We look at older saints as a liability. People that we put up with and we have to spend a lot of time ministering to because they sometimes become shut-ins. We look at our older saints as a liability instead of what God calls them, a treasure. You know, if we have the mentality that churches can only be built around the beautiful and the strong and the vital, we show that we also have fallen for Madison Avenue's line, that we have unconsciously changed our standards of success. One of the first questions I'm often asked when talking to people is, how big is your congregation? Too often we immediately judge a minister's worth by how big his congregation is or how big his congregation's budget is. Make way for a really important man. He is pastor of a big church. Vernon Brown, the former... Uh, president of Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary put this kind of mentality in very stark language. To borrow a biting phrase from philosopher William James, evangelicalism is bowing before the bitch goddess of success. It worships at the shrine of sanctified or unsanctified statistics. We are sinfully concerned about size the size of sanctuaries, the size of salaries, the size of Sunday schools. We are sinfully preoccupied with statistics about budgets and buildings and buses and baptisms. I repeat, too many of us are worshiping the bitch goddess of success. Success in the corporate business world is determined by quantity. How much did he sell? 
How much profit did they make? How much is he worth? How much is he worth? It's quantity alone that counts, not quality. As a matter of fact, uh, the corporate world in many ways has built, uh, deliberately built obsolescence into their products. We've created uh, part shortages. We've created weak products. We've lowered the quality. Why? So that we can sell more quantity. Some of us have been blessed for too long with the privilege of living in the United States. We've forgotten that the world, and indeed history, is filled with Christians who were blessed, who were successful far beyond our poor experience, but who were physically dirt poor and who were very small in number and who were rejected and thought very low of by the world. See, I'm afraid that too often, unconsciously again, we have twisted the Old Testament in the United States, other prosperous nations, to teach that the godly, those who do right, will prosper in this life. But is our economic prosperity, according to the scriptures, a sign of our election? Is the GNP of the United States demonstrate our high level of spirituality? Is it an outward proof that we are in right relationship with God? Or is it an indication of our responsibility? A responsibility that we have foiled, blown, been unfaithful and fulfilling. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, more will be asked. Who do we consider the best prospects for our churches? Who are the people that we'd really like to see uh, walking in those doors? Do we think like the people in James' day? Are we looking for the people with the fancy rings, the beautiful clothes? Would you consider your church successful if all that you added were Southeast Asian refugees? Or poor blacks? or other minority groups? Would you be successful? Or do only white folk with good paying jobs qualify as a good catch? Numbers, quantity, they probably condemn us more than they commend us. What significance do numbers have asked one writer the thing in the human system we're most proud of we should be most ashamed of in the first century it was impossible to unite thousands of Christians in one body 
and failed to revolutionize not a city, not a state, but a country. The very fact that we can proudly put thousands of born-again people together and not make much more than a ripple on the life of a neighborhood shows our weakness, not our strength. What is our pride, our numbers, should be our shame. Now perhaps by this point you're saying, right on, you know. Just what we need to hear. Numbers are not important. But uh, let me remind you that we can make the opposite error as well. That we can rationalize based on these true observations that numbers are unimportant. We can settle back and say, well, our churches are small because uh, God wants it that way. We can make the opposite mistake of developing not a theology of success, but we can create in the church a theology of failure. We build in failure. We can come up with, and we have come up with, a whole stack of reasons why our churches are small. And they sound pretty good. Wherever two or three are gathered together. (laughs) Doesn't take much to make a real church. But you know, God is concerned about faithfulness. And God is concerned about fruitfulness. God is concerned about whether we are building. God is concerned about whether as the body works together it grows. Yes, in quality, but also in quantity. God is gathering in his people. That's quantity, that's numbers. If all the numbers had been gathered in, the Lord would have returned. So let's not make these true observations about the cultural captivity of the church in terms of numbers as an excuse for disobedience. The cultural captivity of the church has also affected our evangelism. Seems to me that because of our identification of wealth and power and prestige, unconsciously, with success, because we have adopted the world's goals unconsciously as our own, we have made very little evangelistic effort towards such successful people. You see, we seem to have the impression that, unconsciously, those who are basically good people, Those who have healthy, happy marriages, those who have good jobs, those who are financially secure, those who are good neighbors, somehow don't seem to need to hear the gospel as much as the poor and the down and out. You see, most evangelical Protestant churches have left the rich and the powerful to the Episcopalians and the Catholics. But is our gospel only for alcoholics, derelicts, people with problems, serious problems, irresponsible people? 
Are the unconverted of the world only the losers? The unsuccessful, the disillusioned, the powerless, the insignificant, the unskilled. Do we have the unconscious impression that the successful segments of our society only need God's help to a limited extent because they've already made it so far on their own. They've already justified themselves in his sight quite a bit by their success. How many Orthodox Presbyterian churches minister to the rich? How many of us minister personally to our mayor or our police chief? How many of us are really concerned about those in prominent positions? Cultural captivity of the church has also affected our worship. It's the image that makes it in the corporate world and in political life. So they have all kinds of public relations men and ad men and everybody else to make sure that they have the right image. And what has happened in the church? Well, what has happened is that showtime has creeped into the life of the American church. Don't give us a meeting with God. Give us a good performance. Time for another cartoon. See, I'm a... You see, what I'm doing is to teach you that entertainment is not right, I'm going to entertain you. <laughs> the fellow in, in the one pew looks at the other fellow, the pastor pulling the rabbit out of the hat, and he says, I like a pastor who makes things happen. <laughs> and to continue our uh, observation of showtime in the American church, we really do have showtime. We see the announcer saying, Reverend Al made a good point there, folks. Let's see that again on instant replay. <laughs> Showtime has creeped into the life of the church. Don't give us a meeting with God. Give us a performance. Our concern for our image has made us hesitate at times to exercise church discipline. We need all the people we can get. So we have to avoid conflict, offense at all costs. We don't want to be known as too strict in a world of increasing personal latitude. The cultural captivity of the church has also affected our pastoral relationships. Congregations think of their pastor as a hired employee. Pastors think of their ministry as a job. When there are problems in the church, we think that we should do just what the business world does. We should have a personnel shakeup. Cultural captivity of the church affects our pastoral relationships. It also affects the urgency of our kingdom labors. 
Life is just too good for the end to be around the corner. It's too good here in America to get all that serious about the future. It affects the urgency of our kingdom labors. It, it affects our prophetic role. How can we preach to a culture which we ourselves are part of? How can we condemn the world for standards that we ourselves are practicing? How can we be part of the solution if we're part of the problem? You see, all of this is to say that we need to re-examine what a wonderful thing, the opportunity to examine ourselves. The Lord really knew what we needed when he gave us the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see who is grading you. Are you living for God's grade? Or are we perhaps unconsciously still living for the world's goals? Are we being a successful church by realizing the attitudes and actions which God demands of his people, are we being a sweet aroma in the nostrils of the Lord? Are we pleasing in his sight? Now it's important to remember what it is that we are going to be talking about this week when we talk about whether or not we are a successful church. The question before us is not, are we significant people? Are we successful people, persons? God has told us in his word that we are successful. We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. We are kings. We are seated in heavenly places. We are the redeemed. We have been declared worthy by the undeserved grace of God. God has established our worth our success in his sight by sending his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. We are worthy. So the question is not are we successful as people, as individuals? The question is are we successful as a church in accomplishing the goals that God has set before us to obey? Now, I think I need to say something at this point before I develop that just a little bit further. And that is the fact that the church of Jesus Christ, by definition, is successful. The church of Jesus Christ will accomplish the work in the world that God has called us to. The church throughout history is a winner. It is not a loser. God will accomplish his will through his people. The good pleasure of the Lord will be realized. The church will be successful by definition because it is God's church. He will build his church. So the question is not, is the church universal a successful church? The question is, is my branch of the church universal, a successful church? Are we sharing a piece of the action? 
perfect examples found in the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Jonah did not want to participate in God's desire, God's goal of redeeming people from outside of the nation of Israel. God called Jonah to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah refused to obey God's will. He went the other way. Now you see, Jonah's disobedience, his lack of cooperation with God's purpose, did not affect his status as a redeemed person. Jonah was saved by the grace of God for all of eternity. You see, what is at stake is not Jonah's salvation. What is at stake is Jonah's joy. Jonah's feeling of success in being used by God to bring his salvation, his salvation to others, to bring his purposes to pass. You see, the danger in Peter's words in the first chapter of his first letter is that Jonah would be useless and fruitless in the work of the Lord. So this is then the issue that we will face this week. Not how can I be a successful person. Not how can I, not how can the church of Jesus Christ be successful. But how can my church be successful? What are the goals, the values, the attitudes? What is the target I must hit in order to be pleasing? God's sight. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is certainly true that the world is too much with us. Lord, we find it so hard to lift ourselves above our culture and to realize in our minds as well as in our practice those standards and values which are different than the world and which are pleasing in your sight. Father, you are not enough, the significant other in our lives. Lord, we are, we are not people, Lord, who would give up all for your sake. We pray, Father, that you would show us that, the ways in which we're holding back. We pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts so that we would set aside all other gods that we have before you. Help us, O oh Lord, to be truly devoted to you, the bridegroom. Help us to love you above all else. Help us to live what we sing. Father, we ask for your mercy. For, Lord, we are so easily deceived. It is so hard, Lord, to see beyond the things that we can touch and feel, the things that we experience in physical ways. It's so hard, O oh Lord, to climb above that to the glories of heaven and those spiritual realities which are eternal and far more important. We cannot do it ourselves, O oh Lord, but we know that with your help, we can. So we pray, Father, that you would teach us this week as we look at the goals, 
which you have set before us, those values which we must strive for, those actions which we must accomplish in order to be successful in doing the work of the Lord. Bless us this week, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.